Welcome back to Unlapsed. Unfortunately for our listeners, I'm not Katie George, I'm Lawrence Edmondson. But the good news is I've got Nate Saunders, as always, joining me, and our friend and guest, Spencer Hall. I say guest, but actually I think he's been on the last two podcasts in Las Vegas, so soon becoming a regular, I feel, uh, Spencer Hall with us as well. The plan for today, and it's a pretty big plan, is to get through a review of the 2023 Formula One season now that it's officially over. As we've known for several months, Max Verstappen is our world champion, his third championship in a row. Red Bull got their second consecutive Constructors' Championship, but there was a huge amount of fighting for lower positions behind that. So we're going to do our best to break it all down and reflect on some of the most incredible moments that we saw over the 2023 season. Now, remember, this is a bit I've been wanting to say for a while now. If you're watching on YouTube, like this video, leave a comment, whatever that may be. And don't forget to subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. If you're listening, hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. All right, gentlemen, let's get into it. Nate, Spencer, season is officially over. Uh, as I said before, I think the last time we were all together was in Las Vegas. Uh, but what have you two been up to since? I believe you actually met up in Atlanta. Uh, we we did. We got our boy his uh, southern exposure and uh, took him on a little tour of Atlanta, showed him uh, a couple of places where a bunch of bad things happened and then uh, <laughs> got him some barbecue and football. So really, he got the full slate. Yeah, it was awesome. So I was I stayed in Vegas, as you know, Lawrence um, went to uh, Thanksgiving in Tampa and then went to Atlanta for the SEC championship game. Um, just an awesome trip around. And when I saw Spencer, I had a beard that wasn't quite as big as his, but was about half the size. Um, and to sum up the state I was in when I got home, in my jet lag state, trying to stay awake, I took my razor out, went to shave my beard, and had left the key bit of the razor off, which is the which dictates the length of it. So I feel like a new a new man, um, but I feel like quite a bit of an egghead today. So I don't know whether I don't know whether I'm going to be an egghead in terms of the content of my of my output, but we'll see. Uh, but yeah, it was a great time, and I've I've got to say. Shout out to the people of Atlanta because um, some of the friendliest people I've met have been have been down there. It was a it was a cool cool place. Went to the Coca Cola Museum as well, um, and they've they've won me over. I used to, you know, float between them and Pepsi, but I'm all in on Coke now. Good, good here for those um, listening on the podcast. I do urge you to get yourself onto YouTube to watch the video format of this. Just to see Nate's beautiful face. Um, I haven't <laughs> seen him look like that for some time. I'm not sure his mother's seen him look like that for some time. No, I, is, no, I just, quite, I just sent a picture funny. to my parents and they were both, I mean, they were both found it very funny. My mum said, you should keep it. And I said, there's absolutely no way this is happening. But um, if you do, if you do watch it on YouTube, you'll see my, my dimples the whole way through, which are absolutely massive. I found out. Good, good dimples. Right, okay, let's go on this, because we do have, as I said, an awful <laughs> lot to get through. Um, the story of the 2023 season, as we know, it was about Max Verstappen dominating, breaking multiple records. We'll, we'll get to all that in a bit. But first of all, uh, kind of, you know, way to ease us in. If you take Max aside, gentlemen, who are your top three drivers? I'm going to start with Nate. Yeah, so this was something that I thought was going to be a lot easier than it was. Um, I think my top three, well, I guess we'll list them and then discuss, right? So I would say Alonso, Lando Norris, and Alex Albon, which I appreciate is controversial because there's no Lewis in there, but we can we can discuss. Spencer? I was, I was going to take Piastri. I was going to take Alonso. And I was going to take Albon. So there's a little bit of overlap there. I agree with Nate. It is a much harder task than I anticipated picking the top three most impressive drivers. 
And no Valtteri Bottas from you, Spencer. No, Valtteri, li listen, I, you have to be honest with those you love. I love Valtteri. He, he, he wasn't a top three. He wasn't a top 12 driver this year. No, I, I think that that's probably fair. Maybe Valtteri would even admit that himself. I actually had the same written down on my notepad here as, as Nate. Um, if you go to ESPN's website, sooner or later, you'll find my, my top 10 list. Um, and it's slightly different. But I really wanted to include Albon as well, just because of the uh, remarkable job that he did in that Williams. And I think that's the thing that uh, is so difficult to do when we do these kind of lists, when we talk about uh, who, who really impressed us, is to remove the car element and focus on um, on what the driver achieved themselves. Um, uh, I want to pick up on Piastri Spencer, because that's a that's a, it's a good shout. Um, what, what was it about him, uh, obviously, in his rookie year that, that really stood out to you? I think the most difficult thing for a rookie to deal with week in and week out is the mental element of racing and learning to be a professional at that level and really dealing with the stress and being consistent. And especially towards the second half of the season, Piastri was icy, was composed, was as consistent and bankable an element as we had outside of the Max Verstappen reality distortion field. So uh, it was thrilling for me to see a young driver do that well, that consistently, and without an ounce of insecurity in either direction. He just seemed like he belonged. It wasn't like he was, uh, it wasn't like he was a destabilizing or overly competitive force on his own team. Nor was it like he wanted to take a back seat to Lando. Um, that's impressive. That kind of composure is unique, and I thought he deserved a shout out for that alone. Yeah, I think you're right. This one's. I mean. Uh, Andrea Stella, the uh, team principal at McLaren, pointed out that he reminded him of Fernando Alonso and Michael Schumacher, two of the drivers that Stella's worked directly with, that's, and obviously two, two, two of the best drivers of the last. I mean, seems like seems like a, seems get, like a fine comparison. <laughs> yeah, you can't get much better praise than that, really, can you? Mm -hmm. um, Nate, uh, just quickly on on uh, I did a bit on Albon. So on on Norris and Alonso, uh, mm. what was it about those two? Yeah, well, I mean, Spencer makes a really good point about Piastri. And I actually, in thinking about this, I was thinking Piastri had such a good year. You also had in the context that he was a rookie, you know, and the you, know, you don't quite expect as much from rookies. The reason I put Lando in there, I felt like one of the McLaren drivers had to be in that, you know, non-max top three. The reason I put Lando there was because I think over the course of the year, he was just so good. Now he did, he made a few mistakes by his own admission in qualifying, which I think, I think it was two at least where he felt like pole position was there. But I think... Given how far ahead Max was all year, I don't think those mistakes really had a huge bearing on his season. There were still mistakes, but I think that what we saw from Lando, especially given, if you remember, I mean, Lawrence, you'll remember this when we were in Bahrain, his body language at the start of the year, just given where McLaren was and given, you know, he was he was staring down the barrel at another year of McLaren just being 15th every week, you know, which was awful. The way he grew into that season as the car got better, I think was really impressive. So that's why I gave him the nod. And Alonso, I mean, just fantastic all year. I mean, I know the as the car fell away a bit, you know, he was he was less prominent at the top. But he actually, if you look at his performances, he was just always there, you know, the level of excellence that he set. I mean, at the start of the season, he was really what was making it interesting behind Max, wasn't he? It was this that tantalizing thought of Fernando could win a race you know we've said monaco where it felt like for a few laps it was close um and it was just great as well as as formula one fans you know we've seen alonso he's been through the ringer for quite a while in terms of the cars he's driven the opportunities that he's kind of missed out on so for for things to kind of for him to have made a career move that you know seemingly went in the in a positive direction rather than in, in a negative one was nice as well and yeah i think there's nothing better than 
a happy Alonso, but also a competitive Alonso. I think it's just it's just great to see. So I think he was, for me, he was comfortably at the top of this pack. And I have to say, and we can talk about this, but I, I did I feel really harsh leaving Hamilton out because I think again with Hamilton, I think we expect so much of him that a season like he had, you're like, yeah, of course, of course, Hamilton was good. Like that's. He's a seven-time world champion. So I think almost you can almost downplay the year he had because we know what he's capable of doing. So I would caveat that by saying that Hamilton could be in there. But it's just, like you said, Lawrence, it's, it's so tricky when you've got three spaces because there's about six or seven people that you feel like could have had a shout to be in there. Um, how about you? Because you said yours were the same as mine. So was there any any differences on kind of Albon, Lando or anything like that from, from what I said? Well, the other way I think we can justify our Alonso and Norris uh, choices is that they got the most podiums behind the two rebel drivers. So Alonso with eight over the season, uh, Lando Norris with seven. And when I was going through my top 10 uh, and ran it up, uh, I did some maths on Lando Norris's season. And of course, it only really got started from Austria onwards, which is when McLaren brought a huge upgrade to their car. And if you zeroed the points in Austria and allow them to, to uh, amount for, from that point onwards, then Lando Norris would have been second in the championship to Max Verstappen, ahead of Sergio Perez, ahead of Lewis Hamilton, ahead of Fernando Alonso, ahead of the Ferrari drivers. So that really underlines what a great job Norris did uh, during that period. The only thing going against him is that I think there were a few occasions where he admits that he didn't get the best from it. Uh, there was at least three pole positions that he could have got. Uh, Qatar was one, USA, and the final one has escaped me, but I'm sure we'll get back to it when we get around to McLaren. Um, so yeah, three times he said he felt he could have been on pole position if it wasn't for his own mistake. So that kind of counts against him. But um, yeah, uh, I, I think I personally think that, that those are very justifiable. But as you say, you could make arguments for so many of, of the drivers on the grid this year being in that group behind Max. Um, while we're on kind of more general subject, uh, I want to get your most memorable moments of the year. And this time, starting with Spencer. I loved qualifying more this year than I think I have in any other season because the races in general were a foregone conclusion past the one spot. So at times, if you really wanted to see someone sweat, if you really wanted to see Max Verstappen put forth great effort and serious concentration in a moment where it had to matter, qualifying carried greater weight this year. And for me, qualifying at Monaco, qualifying at Monaco was uh, legitimately thrilling. Like that's where we thought maybe Alonso was going to ride uh, his resurgent wave of enthusiasm and, you know, 40 plus greatness into something like a win. And it was brilliant watching all of them attempt to top the other. I like, and to do it at that circuit, to do it in that environment, um, it was just absolutely thrilling to watch. I know it wasn't the greatest season. I know it was lackluster in terms of drama, of drama, but it was still there. You don't like, you can't beat speed for drama. And you can't beat speed in that setting with the stakes that Monaco's pole position carries. Uh, that for me, that was my favorite moment. Yeah, that, that was particularly special, I have to say. Uh, Nate, for you? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> mine wasn't this, but I, I was thinking about Monaco because to to cap it off was the max lap at the end where he, it seemed like he was just going to drive straight into the wall and somehow missed it at the end. That mm -hmm. was amazing. I think the only thing when I was thinking about it that stood out more for me than that. And it's going to sound like I'm on some, you know, Alonso fan show hype, but his battle with Sergio Perez at Interlagos, you know, I thought that that, if you were to, if you were to crystallize the best bits of Formula One and put them into a few laps, I think it was that. The only negative was it wasn't for the win. 
other than that, it was brilliant, you know. And and again, we talked about <clears throat> I talked about you know a happy and competitive Alonso. I think that for a lot of newer fans, especially Al- Alonso, has been one of those people that they've heard about how great he is. They've heard about oh he's this, he's that. You know, they haven't they hadn't until this year really had a. I mean, maybe they did in twenty one of some of his Alpine drives, but that was that was a reminder that Alonso is not just quick, you know, he's not just a guy who's consistent. He, as a racing driver, he, he ticks so many boxes and Perez to his credit fought very, very cleanly as well. You know, we saw Max and Lewis, you know, nearly come to blows there a couple of years before. Um, and yeah, it was just a really, a really thrilling moment. And I think that it was, it was, <clears throat> it was at the same time brilliant. And it was frustrating because part of me watching it was like, man, this is for a fairly in, you know, it, it was for, I think it was for third position, Maybe it was for second. I forget exactly what it was. And you thought, man, if this was, if this was the season we had, if this was for the for the win, obviously we got spoiled by twenty twenty one, then it would have been that much more thrilling. But yeah, as a as a as a handful of laps, I don't think we had better. Um, and for and for Alonso to have probably done it in a car that was on 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 pace was not as quick as well to have got it at the end. You know, a drag drag race to the line. I think there's few things better than that in a in a in a racing uh, in a in a Grand Prix race. Yeah, that was it. Was the third place, and actually, it was on my list as well. Nate, I think we spent too much time together. <laughs> I, think same do, I think we did. Um, the, the, the impressive thing about that was, of course, that we had a car being overtaken and then re-overtake, which we rarely see in in modern F one. But I'm, I'm going to go to uh, second on my list, which was the Las Vegas battle, a uh, mm. three way battle, kind of over a number of laps for the lead between uh, Checo, who kind of inherited it after the safety car, Leclerc, who was uh, absolutely mega that day and was unlucky because of the safety car. And then, of course, the inevitable Max Verstappen, who went on to win it. But um, I think Vegas as a whole, I mean, quite a few of us uh, were sceptical going into it. Um, no, I don't think any of us expected the, the drama we saw on that first practice day where a drain cover came loose and uh, we didn't get any more running for about six hours. But um, but the, a lot of us were sceptical about whether that, that racetrack would offer up decent racing. And it really did. And it was spectacular. So um, I'm, I'm going to stick uh, Vegas in there. And with a with a special mention as well for if we're talking about favourite moments, uh, I don't believe they have to be all on the track, uh, was Bruce Buffer's introduction of yes. Sergio Perez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, From Mexico, it's Sergio Chefko And more than anything, really, Perez's reaction mm. to it, which I'm I'm not sure I've ever seen a driver look quite so bewildered. These guys are usually so confident. And there he was just kind of staring into the camera, staring at Bruce Buffer, wondering what on earth he should do. Yeah, that was. And we were laughing hysterically about that in the press room. And also from that same thing, um, I don't know if you saw, but when he introduced Charles, he said Charles in a weird way. And he'd written, I, can't, I think he says Charles. And it actually, on his notes, when people zoomed in, he had written it phonetically as, so I think, it, and apologies if I've got this wrong, but it was like Charles Leclerc, and he'd, he'd read it as that. And you can see Leclerc come out and it's like, that's not how, no one's ever pronounced it like that. <laughs> so just all round, I thought that was great. And it's funny, isn't it? Because I think people criticize moments like that, but ultimately that was really entertaining. So, you know, I, I, I don't think you can, you can't manufacture that again, but it just shows you like, you know, when things are live and things are, are big and bold like that, you're going to get funny moments. So yeah, I thought that was great. I think if I had to butt in with another Vegas moment, and, and this is, the, I think the Vegas event itself had its own way of winning people over despite its absurdity. Uh, and that includes Max Verstappen. He spent the better part of the week being very honest and blunt about how much he was not enjoying anything and having a very bad time. 
And then I think like dad on the last day of vacation when he's had a few too many and things have gone right for him finally. Um, him singing Viva Las Vegas over the mic uh, on the victory lap, that that that's flawless. Like the last person who couldn't be charmed by the race finally gave in only after he had won it and they were piping Elvis into his uh, headphones. So I, I, I adored that. Yeah, that was it. I mean, that was, um, I, I think, the true like arc of the Las Vegas race weekend. Mm-hmm. Finish with uh, Verstappen actually really quite enjoying it. Um, okay, we we kind of been skirting around Max uh, throughout this podcast so far. Let's let's talk about it because I mean the records are endless. I've got some written out in front of me here. Nineteen race wins in a season—that's a record. Twenty-one podiums in a season—that's a record. Those two records were previously held by Max anyway. Twelve wins from pole in a season—that's a record. Five hundred seventy-five points is the most ever any driver has scored in a season. Of course, he got ten consecutive race wins as part of that. Six hat tricks, two hundred ninety points ahead of Sergio Perez, his teammate. So he more than doubled Perez's score. He would have finished second in the constructors by himself. One thousand and three laps led. I didn't even know we had that many laps in a season. Uh, <laughs> he's the only driver ever to go over a thousand laps in a season. And that means a total of 75.7% of the total laps led by Max as well. Um, I mean, those records kind of speak for themselves. But Spencer, I want to ask you, um, in the context of wider sports, I think Nate and I all too often have our head buried in Formula One and we don't look at other stuff. Uh, You you have a much broader uh, view of of the sporting landscape. How do you contextualize this, uh, this success by Max? It is hard to contextualize because there's very few peers for this kind of explanation. You have to resort to the kind of grandiose comparisons that people begin to cringe at instantly because the names are so big, so cliched and so obvious. You know, it's like one of Messi's mega goal seasons. You know, Um, it's like one of these kind of induplicable, you know, uh, like distance running things where you go, oh, my God, they ran a marathon in two hours, you know. It is um, it is a Bob Beeman long jump in Mexico City at altitude, but you do it every single race for the entirety of an F1 season. You know, um, it's, you know, Jeff Gordon, 99 and NASCAR. It's the the levels. It's Serena Williams. Um, it's that kind of Michael Jordan, you know, style domination over the course of a whole season. It's it's hard to sum up. Um, what you couldn't compare him to when you just want to go ahead and say, okay, this is great. And I think people will put it on that level eventually. I think when they see um, the kind of, you know, I I think domination in F1 is not unusual. I think people know that. I think the lay fan knows that. I think they know there are long runs, but I do not think they properly understand the scale of this particular season, this particular run, and exactly how dominant he was. He was so dominant that he made a sport where you go 200 miles an hour in front of millionaires boring. That <laughs> that shouldn't be, and he was capable of it. So I think a lot of our criticisms of the 2023 season are, in fact, a backhanded compliment to the level of dominance. Um, whatever you want to throw on there in terms of it's incredible how dominant this person was, that's where he's at. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and you're so right. Every time we get records like this, uh, you don't necessarily appreciate them at the time. I remember Lewis mm-hmm. saying this a lot of the time after he had broken records is that he couldn't quite get his head around it at the time. But then when you start to look back at it and you realize the, the size of the mm-hmm. achievement, um, it, it does become very clear. But Nate, the reality of living through 19 of uh, 22 races won by Max Staffen is is quite different, isn't it? And um, as impressive as it is, and, and of course, you know, Max is just doing what Max does and he shouldn't be criticized in any way for it, nor should Red Bull. But the sport as a whole... 
does it face a bit of a problem here if, if we continue to have this level of domination? Yeah, I think so. And like Spencer said, you know, <clears throat> none of this is aimed at Max. This is just a you know a, a, a fact of how things are. But yeah, I really, I really think so. You know, and and I think it's very telling when you you see the tail end of the season. So much hype, or you know, in my opinion, forced hype is being put on the battle for second, the battle for third, and the constructors. Because ultimately, it's hard to get excited about that. You know, and I think that there's there is a tendency within the paddock to kind of try and make out like every season's been amazing. And looking at it, this one from a competitive point of view, there's been some some good moments as we talked about. But this season, especially towards the second half of the year, I think it dragged. You know, you know, because you knew Max was winning races. I mean, there was obviously Singapore where he didn't win, which was kind of, you know, a nice kind of like, okay, you know, there's 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 a change and Ferrari's back on you know top of the podium and stuff like that. But we're coming off of well, we're in a period right now where Formula One's popularity is as high as it as it is. You know, it it's it's never been as big as this, it's never had the the kind of the global appeal that it's got right now. And I feel like 2021 really has recalibrated what a good season is in Formula One, you know, and that was so special. I'd be amazed if we ever got something that close again, um, certainly in the next couple of years. Um, but this one, I think, is probably on the other end of the scale to that, you know, and 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 I think you can, you can do both. Both things can be true. You can look at what Max did this year and say, unbelievable achievement, unbelievable domination. You know, one of the, one of the all-time individual, great individual seasons from Verstappen. But as a, as a whole, I think one of the worst I've, I've done, yeah, as a journalist, and that includes some of those Lewis years. I think the reason why, as well, if you look at those Lewis years by comparison, the stats are actually that Lewis set. Even though at the time it felt like he was dominating a lot, he wasn't winning as many races, wasn't leading as many laps. You know, it felt like there was a lot more of a tangible chance he might not win races. Whereas this wasn't the case this year. So, if this continues into next season, and and this is the other thing as well that I want to I want to throw into this, if this continues into next year, I think there's a doubt. There's there's two things that. Are kind of concerning one is it's not fun to keep watching the same driver win the other is and we've talked about this before on the show i know is that this feels like one of the most talented grid lineups we've had for a very very long time in formula one you know you've got obviously you've got you've got max you've got lewis you've got fernando but beneath that you've got all these young guys you've got Charles, lando you've got albon you've got russell you've got piastri coming through and at the moment, those guys are just battling around for scraps behind Max. You know, they're getting a second here. You know, Lando still hasn't won a race. Russell's only won one race. Charles has won five races, I think it is, or six races. I can't remember exactly how much, but that's crazy when you look at, you know, what Max is doing. And you almost have this fear that while fans might stop watching on the one hand because of how predictable it is, you've also almost got this generation of talent that potentially you're like, well, could these guys just just go completely unfulfilled for a few years because you know they're not dominating and then in a couple of seasons 2026 we get these new rules will somebody else dominate and then just do the same and you know if you're lando or if you're child you just get kind of you know just stuck in the wasteland there and that would be from a from the point of view of being a fan of racing i think that'd be really sad um and then obviously there's the there's the viewing perspective and the the audience as well so i don't know if people are going to stop watching in droves because i think formula one's done a really good job of connecting with people beyond just the racing but i think another season like this and we'll start to see some really concerning things in terms of you know just how popular it is but then again we've, we've all talked about it vegas seemed like a really big win for formula one in terms of just you know some of the hype and some of the some of the talk around that so maybe it's less important in a sport like formula one compared to maybe to, to maybe other sports where this would be would be damaging now one of the obvious reasons why we didn't have a competitive season was because the only other driver who got his hands on a car as good as the Red Bull, well, that was the Red Bull, was, of course, Checo Perez. 
and he didn't perform at all. Now, Spencer, I'll come to you in a bit, but Nate, I know you've got some like vaguely strong opinions on Perez. Um, how do you summarize his season? Because it started well after the first four races. I think we would have all agreed that you know he was uh, he was doing what he should be doing in that car, but then it just disappeared. Why? Yeah, and that's that's ultimately one of the one of the big frustrations is we got that glimpse of Perez. We knew coming into the year it was going to be Red Bull v Red Bull. And I don't know, it seems and and um you've mentioned already the the driver rankings that you've that you know will be going live on Friday on ESPN.com forward slash Formula One that Lawrence has written. And in the in the max bit, you rightly point out that he used Baku, which was Perez's second win, to analyze how he'd been struggling. You know, he he used that to and it became a ten a ten race winning streak after that. The following race, I think it was Miami, wasn't it, which is where Perez kind of meekly didn't really fight Max, and you never really felt after Baku, you never really felt like there was fight in Perez. You never really felt like he had ultimately that extra ingredient that you need to fight somebody like Max. And we saw for for all of the criticism and stuff of Nico Rosberg, the one thing you can say about him when he fought Lewis was he studied Lewis and he learned how to beat the guy. And I don't feel like with Perez, he's got that, he's had that mental fortitude this year to do that. Um, and when you're in a car as good as the Red Bull, you can't just win two races at the start of the year and then be happy to to kind of cling on to second at the end of the season um i think looking at it i know that red bull red bull to to their credit have tried to put their arm around perez as much as possible but i think in other seasons if rivals were closer i don't think i don't think he'd have kept the seat all season i don't think there would have been any any complaints from him or from fans of his if say after you know monza that said sorry we're you know we're going in a different direction and i think for perez ultimately that's the big storyline going to next year if red bull's rivals are closer I feel like that kind of, you know, the hammer of Damocles or whatever they call it is kind of ha- hanging over his head because yeah. ultimately, ultimately, you can't you can't be in Formula One and be performing like that in such a good car. Um, and I think that Perez, you sorry, you asked me you asked me what happened, Laz, and I think from talking to people at Red Bull, I think ultimately, and this is where you can kind of you can kind of humanize it and you can you can really feel for Perez. I think ultimately he you know he was beaten in Miami and then he made that mistake in qualifying in Monaco. And I think ultimately that just got in his he got in his own head. He started to overthink things. He started to make very small mistakes, which had a massive bearing, especially in qualifying. He would start to make these mistakes and he would be starting races way, way down the field. And he'd spend half the race fighting back and he'd get to third or second. So you knew if he had if it had clean weekends, he probably could have been finishing second a lot more. And, you know, I don't know what that spiral's like. You know, I'm sitting here, you know, on a nice comfy desk in my <laughs> my flat in Reading. I've never I've never had to compete against a guy like Max Verstappen. So I'm not saying that I could have done it any better than him, but he's also paid that money to do that. And we didn't see Perez ultimately at the level mentally that we needed him to be last year. So hopefully this offseason has come at a good time. He can get away from Formula One, rest up, get to where he needs to be and come back stronger next year. But I think the the big thing for me next year is I I I would be surprised if Perez sees out the season with Red Bull if he's in that same form because Red Bull just can't afford him to be dropping that many points if if people are closer. So one of the only um for Perez fans, one of the only kind of uh silver linings that I saw towards the end of the year was a quote from the technical director at Red Bull, Pierre Vache, who said um that while the car was absolutely brilliant and of course dominated so much of the season that only missed out on one race victory, uh, its biggest failing was that it didn't suit both drivers. And of course, um, they look to improve each year. So one of the big 
things he said, I mean, we'll have to see what actually comes out at the other end in wins testing, is, is to make a car that, that both drivers can get the most from, which I guess leads to the question, uh, Spencer, will Red Bull do it all over again? Will they win all but one race? Will they win all races in 2024? And can Perez be uh, a bigger part of that success uh, next year? I tend not to think so because problems don't get unbroke. And I think there's a definite problem with Sergio Perez and his perception of his role at Red Bull. And I think that you, when Nate said he got into his own head about his results, I think that once you're destabilized and once you kind of lose that confidence, then I think it goes both ways. And I think everybody's going to be on watch. So I think the fuse is lit there. I don't know when it's going to go, but I do see long term that that just doesn't seem like a stable situation. Now, does Red Bull manage to thrive despite that? Absolutely. You know, like Red Bull is more than any other team to me is about the team at the cost of anything else. And that includes the number of drivers that they have chewed through uh, in the sub Verstappen tier. Okay. The sport is littered with ex Red Bull drivers who have left and thrived elsewhere. I think Sergio Perez will become one of those sooner rather than later. I don't think that's going to affect the show. I don't think that's going to affect how Red Bull does. I think they will just keep grinding on because the technical advantage that they have, um, I don't think it'll be as substantial. I think when you go, okay, well, what is their evidence? What evidence is there to say that? I think teams like McLaren, like really narrowing the gap. I think Mercedes completely retooling for next year and hopefully not having an a dysfunctional dolphin of a car will hopefully improve their prospects. I just think there's too much money and too much IQ and too much shuffling behind the scenes on the engineering side from what I've read, to say, okay, it's going to be status quo. They'll still be dominant. I just don't think it's going to be the exact same degree of dominance we've seen. Okay, a uh, quick one-word answer just to finish on Red Bull. If Perez does leave, either mid-season, as Nate suggests he may do, or at the end of 2024, who do you replace him with, Nate? And uh, we know there's contracts in place and blah, blah, blah. But to the best of your knowledge, who would be available? Who would you replace him with in 2025? Danny Rick. Spencer? Yeah, the the only real American on the grid, Danny Rick. <laughs> I mean, right, okay. we can put a star there as well. I think Albon, you could put in the mix Ooh. as well. But Ooh. I think right now, right now, my bet would be would be Danny Rick. I know that's more yeah. than one word. That's sorry, I just wrote. No, that's it. right. No, 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 no. I mean, it's certainly the uh, the most likely, and I guess we should give a bit of reasoning uh, for why we're saying it. Of course, Daniel Ricciardo, uh, Alpha Tauri, so best place to move into it. But let's move on to uh, Mercedes. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. <clears throat> ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks... Predicting upsets, 
winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Allstate. Of course, second in the championship, but without a race win the first season, they haven't won a race since 2011. Uh, so not really a success. Toto Wolf was speaking about it in Abu Dhabi, saying that um, it was very much bittersweet and that um, it was really just a reminder, by finishing P2, it was just a reminder that they hadn't won the championship, uh, which didn't feel too great. Now, we talked a bit about uh, Lewis because he wasn't in our top three behind Max Verstappen earlier in the podcast. And now's our chance to explain why. So, Nate, w- what did you feel about Lewis's uh, season, especially in the context of what we expect from Lewis as a seven-time world champion? Yeah, I mean, I think Lewis had a had a strong season. You know, that you can't get away from that. He was one of the stronger competitors of the year. You go through the season, very difficult to find many mistakes. I mean, the one that pops to mind is, I think he drove across Piastri, didn't he, in Qatar? Uh, I remember talking to him after that in the mixer. Sorry, Ru- sorry, Russell. Of course it was. Of course it was Russell. And he owned that mistake right afterwards. He was like, "Yeah, that was you know my bad." Um, and yeah, I think obviously when a team like Mercedes has the season that Mercedes had, you can only really compare a driver to the team to their teammate. And Lewis across the season outperformed Russell. And I think that you know last season we talked a lot about how a lot of those more experimental setups went Lewis's way when they were really struggling with the car. And I think that. Russell had a great year. He won that race. But I think there was a feeling coming out of the year that a lot of people felt like, oh, well, Russell's outperformed Lewis. You know, maybe Russell's the better driver. And I think this this year, to me, just internally at Mercedes, it felt like a reminder of just how good Lewis is. And I think that right now, if you were to pick who's the better driver of the two, I think it's still comfortably Lewis at this point. You know, Russell could get there at some point. Um, but yeah, just so quick, you know, you always feel like Lewis is getting the best out of the car. And the thing with him as well, and and Lawrence, you know, you've you've spoken to him more than I have this year. You've been in press conferences with him more than I have this year, but you can feel that palpable sense of frustration with him, can't you? Whenever he's whenever he's talking, because he's known what it's like to win, and he's known what it's like to win at that Mercedes team, you know, with a lot of the same guys that are still there now. And I think that what was impressive, actually, and we'll see how you know whether it bears fruit at the start of next season. He's been very vocal more vocal I think this year even than last year about how big the next few months are going to be for Mercedes and it's almost I think he's held himself to account in a certain in certain ways you know I think I forget where he was saying it now uh, it might have been on a maybe on a podcast it may, may have been at the end of the season the final race but he said there were times this year he started to doubt himself even he said you know when you're not getting these results the first place you look is in the mirror you look at yourself so I think he's he's doing something which I think a lot of good leaders have to do in teams where he's saying, look, you know, I've got to hold myself to this standard, but the team has to be at this standard too. And I think that we were seeing that through the season from him. You know, he, I, I'm sure there are people who are furiously writing in the comments section now that I've missed an obvious huge clangor that Lewis made this year. And maybe you guys can remember one, but it felt like a really strong season. But because we've seen Lewis win so many championships, because we're, we're so familiar, or we were so familiar with him winning, it's amazing now, isn't it? After that, years and years of that record of, He's won a race every year of his career. We've now got two where he hasn't won a single race. It just shows you how quickly those things can can change. But the norm for him was just excellence before. So I think that, you know, it's really easy to downplay a guy like Lewis. I think he had a really, really good season. And the fact that he's not in, he wasn't in my non-max top three is reflected in the fact that we just expect so much from him. Um, but yeah, I think he was he was a standout performer. But I think 
it's not going to be a season he looks back on fondly. I think this year and last year, I think whenever it comes to be the end of his career, I think he'll look at these as kind of some of the worst of his career. And that's saying a lot as well, because, you know, he's been in the sport for so long um, and obviously hasn't always won championships. Um, but yeah, I thought he, I thought he was great. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and uh, we should also make a little note. Of course, he signed a new two-year contract with Mercedes going forward. So he has that confidence in the team clearly. Apparently did not call up Christian Horner, uh, asking him about it, but his father may have asked him uh, whether there was availability in passing at some point this year. Uh, let's not dwell on that, but let's look at the other side of the garage. Uh, Spencer, George Russell, it seemed like uh, the performance was maybe there, 11-11 with Lewis in qualifying. Anyone who can hold Lewis like that in, in qualifying over a season uh, must be doing something right. But in the races, it just didn't seem to come together. And then, of course, there were a few high-profile mistakes as well. So what did you make of George's season? It's interesting you mentioned Lewis's frustration because uh, for a while that kind of frustration seemed to be Lewis only and George just sort of being the happy second banana. And I thought that if there was one little storyline with George Russell in 2023, it was sort of an emerging impatience uh, or frustration with the team itself. I felt like he was more vocal this year. Um, I don't think that was just a matter of uh, maybe the broadcasts dipping into his headset a little more often than they had. No, I mean, I think it was very clear that he had thoughts on pit strategy, that he had complaints with some of their strat their uh, strategic decisions at Mercedes. I think it was clear that at times he was more vocal about the car and about what he thought the shortcomings of the car were. So um, I, I think when you look back at like the great career arc of George Russell, wherever he's going, this is this season where I think you could point, you know, to his real sort of ambition emerging more than anything else vocally. Like it's, it's, he's always been ambitious, obviously he's where he's at, but I think it became more of a visible public thing than anything else. And I think sometimes that impatience showed in racing too, you know, like when he made mistakes, I felt like they were generally products of, uh, you know, frustrated ambition more than anything else. Right and now, before just, oh, no, go on, sorry, go on. just as a quick one on that as well. I remember, uh, and this is, the, I know that Lawrence is going to think I'm just bringing up Ricardo because I love because I love the guy. But I remember Ricardo in 2014 when he joined Red Bull, he gave a really revealing interview at the end of that year where he said one of the biggest frustrations he had was he'd come in and he felt like he was ready to win a world championship. He had joined Red Bull, who had won three, uh, four straight championships. He gets to the car in 2014, and it's not there. The car is, you know, third quickest, fourth quickest. Russell's had that same thing. You know, those years waiting at Williams. I think he, he had years where he he felt I should be in that car instead of Bottas. He gets to Mercedes and they're not the quickest anymore. And that, I think, mentally, when you're a younger driver, that must be really difficult to deal with because you look at it and you're like, all these guys think they can be world champion. And I think that two years of that now, I think one year he could have dealt with, two years and not seeing a huge step forward, I think that starts to weigh on him. So next year, if I was Toto Wolf, I'd actually be more worried about you know where George is going to be at mentally because Lewis is at the end of his career. You know he knows this is it for him. You know I don't think there's anywhere else he's going to go. But for mm -hmm. Russell, you start to question: Am I going to win the championship with this team? And that can be a dangerous mindset to get into. I think. Okay, well, obvious question then: Will Mercedes have a car capable of fighting for a championship next year? Have they got the building blocks in place? They made some changes this year. I I think 2025 I would put money on that. I don't I think next year Red Bull that gap is so big and I really I really trust a team like Mercedes to do it but yeah I just think to expect that over the next few months and into the into the you know into next season I think it's a lot. I think that what is probably more likely or you know if you were Mercedes you would hope to see is they start challenging for wins 
mid midway through the season towards the end of the year and then they go into 25 a bit like we saw with Red Bull a little bit in 2020 you know kind of building up to 21 just getting a bit stronger you know and then improving in that final final off season um obviously I'd love to see it but it just it feels like such a long way off for Mercedes and for all the guys in that chasing pack okay well let's consign the W14 to the rubbish bin trash cans of Brackley and um, move on to Ferrari um the only team to win a race other than Red Bull this year, which is is pretty remarkable more from a Red Bull point of view than Ferrari. But the race winner there was Carlos Sainz. Um, it was a pretty solid season, and I think there were some real flashes of brilliance, of course, Monza as well, where he um, qualified on pole and held off Verstappen mm. for so long. So, Spencer, um, Sainz, did, did he fulfil his full potential? Did, do you look at him now more as a, as an even match for Leclerc at Ferrari? And not yet, because I still feel like Carlos Sainz is the gifted kid who doesn't do his homework. Like, I, I feel like in terms of drivers, I feel like he's the guy who, when it comes to qualifying or doing some of the like, you know, technical stuff that you need to do, he sometimes falls behind and then has to make up that gap during the race. Like to me right now, he is the best guy who, if I said he's in P15 right now and you take Max Verstappen off the board. And you say, where does he end up? Does he end up, you know, P5? Does he end up P4? I have a lot of confidence in Carlos doing that. I think he's a great come from behind driver at this point. I don't think he is a leader of the pack style driver. Like I think Leclerc is capable of being because, um, because of mistakes, because of mental lapses, because of sometimes, yeah, outright rotten Ferrari style bad luck. But um, I, I think signs is still... I think this is good news when you say, I think Carlos Sainz is still a work in progress and I still think there's growth to be had there. Um, and of course, in Leclerc, he's going up against arguably the best qualifier on the grid. I mean, that's mm -hmm. where, where I'd, I'd put Leclerc. So it's, it's a tough job for for, for Sainz. Um, but yeah, let, let's talk about Charles a little bit, Nate. According to the Italian media, he's signed a new five-year contract yeah. in Ferrari, um, having just, well, at the end of next year, he will come to the end of his existing five-year contract with Ferrari. Um, I mean, there's a lot of memes going around about him kind of signing up for another five years of uh, bad luck, pain, and all the rest of it. Um, do you think if that if that's the case, and it's a pretty well-sourced article in Gazzetta della Sport, do do you think that that's the right choice for Charles after the certain amounts of disappointment he had this year? I mean, I don't think a long deal like that is, no. I mean, we know there's what we think is going to be a big reset in 2026 coming, and it just feels like committing beyond that at this stage is just is really tricky. Of course, you could look at it and you could say, well, maybe Ferrari's the team that gets that right in 2026 with, you know, with the new engine regs. So maybe that's where his head is at. And he knows better than anyone what is going on behind the scenes there. But it does seem like a long way, a long, you know, a, a, a big commitment to a team that we haven't seen huge progress from. We've seen, you know, glimpses like we saw in Singapore with, uh, with science winning. But then again, I do think about it and I look at, we were saying the same about Lando at the start of last year, of start of 2022, when he signed that long deal. And it seemed for a year and a half, it was like, what on earth has he done? McLaren, come with that big upgrade to Austria. Suddenly he's up there fighting for second. Suddenly McLaren look at it and they're like, well, we're actually not far away from being at a challenge for a championship. And suddenly you think, well, actually, maybe there was some logic to that to that deal. It's, it's not as long as Charles's would be. Obviously, we're talking about contract signed at different times but th those things can turn around quite quickly so i don't want to sit here and say oh it's a terrible idea or a terrible decision but it's hard to see the logic of it and i think 
it speaks a lot as well to the fact that if you look at Red Bull right now, committed with Max long term through to 2028, I think. Um, <clears throat> you look at McLaren, they've obviously they've signed Piastri down beyond that 2026. Lando's likely to stay beyond there, I would say, unless he goes on to Audi. I don't know if you're Charles, if you take that big risk of going to Audi when they get there in 26. So really, I think there's two things going on. One is a loyalty to Ferrari, but also if you're really honest about it, and then obviously Mercedes have Russell and Hamilton. And let's be honest, I think if those two guys want to stay, I think Mercedes would keep them beyond 26. I still think that's the strongest lineup on the grid right now. So really, as much as it's it's a decision he's making, I don't think there's a huge amount of options to him available that seem like better steps than staying at Ferrari. You know, you're still at the most famous team in racing and there's whoever is the first driver to win that championship after so long. I think it's going to be one of the most special championships. Anyone wins in Formula One just because of the history and the story around Ferrari. So there's that pull. They've supported him his whole career. I mean, look at Lewis with Mercedes, you know, the loyalty he has to that, to that manufacturer. So it's easy for us to sit here and kind of, and, second guess it for me it seems like a, a you know a slightly wild decision but if you put yourself into charles's head you know, you look at it from the business point of view and you you know you tug on the heartstrings a little bit you can understand that but yeah if you were betting on who the next team that isn't red bull to win a championship would be i think ferrari's one of the braver calls to make so he's he's maybe maybe in vegas he got the he got the the gambling bug and he's just he's just rolling dice now down a craps table and just seeing what sticks yeah in in that vein though you are right the emotional payoff of being that driver and of never yep. having to pay, spend a dollar in Italy again for anything. <laughs> well, spectacular storyline. Yeah, and look, I think Ferrari, as much as any team, the pull of driving there must be huge. And for Charles, I mean, they, you know, they've they've supported him from the beginning. So to leave that, and I think Charles, you know, he's a very Charles. He's you know he's he's a very you know he's a nice guy. You know, he seems when you when you when you see him interviewed, he. He seems like somebody who's very, you know, he's he's very loyal to the team. He's he's always defended Ferrari, even when he's upset. You know, he doesn't fully throw them under the bus. He's always, you know, he's he's a good employee for the team, isn't he? So I feel like it's kind of a sim symbiotic relationship. They both suit each other. Um, Ferrari, he feels like kind of the prodigal son a little bit. He's the guy. You know, they've put all of their resources into this. You know, he got there. They got rid of Vettel when when Charles arrived. Um, yeah, so. Uh, yeah, I think that pull has has got a much bigger um, kind of is a much bigger factor than we're maybe uh, giving it credit for outside of outside of this podcast. Yeah, even Lewis Hamilton, who's won seven world championships, gets asked regularly, "Are you going to finish your career yeah. without having driven for Ferrari?" Because it's such a big deal. Um, uh, the answer is usually that he's quite okay with that. But um, <laughs> yeah, it, it is a big deal driving for Ferrari, and of course, as you both said, imagine being the driver who ends the title drought, which currently goes back to 2007 for a driver's title, 2008 for a constructor's. Okay, let's move on to McLaren. Now, we've talked a lot about the two drivers, Piastri and Lando Norris earlier, both for very positive reasons. So let's talk about the team. Um, they kind of finished the year almost as uh, second best in a lot of places uh, to Red Bull. Um, for a long time, McLaren have been in this wilderness. Uh, you know, we won't get bogged down in the full history of it, but awful years with Honda as an engine supplier, then switched to Renault, didn't really make much progress. Uh, finally, they've got a Mercedes engine in the back that seems to work. And they've been able to, uh, this year really, during the season, develop the car into a sensible place. Spencer, what happens next? Um, is this the uh, the stepping stone to, to, to fighting for championships? Or would you expect to see McLaren slip back relative to some of the more well-funded opposition? 
to me right now, they have the best setup for an underdog. They have their engine sourced, right? So they don't necessarily have to worry about that. They can focus on um, everything else, aero, et cetera, that they have to do. Um, so they don't have to devote resources to, you know, the big expensive thing. They've, they've, they've sorted that. They have two great drivers, like two great drivers. That is massive uh, management largely in place. I think that confidence-wise, it's hard to engineer a bigger 180 than they did this season from start to finish. It really is. And that kind of momentum is the kind of thing that it is tempting to push forward. It's tempting to say, well, they're 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 on the up. Okay. There's nothing stopping them from just plateauing. Nothing, right? There's nothing stopping them from plateauing and others making gains, right? Like if if this offseason and this season proved anything, it's that you know, you will see surprises like Aston Martin's dominance uh, in the early part of the season, which, you know, I didn't see coming. I know smarter people did, but like, I think the general, the general mass of people did not expect that kind of thing. So how's this? I'm cautiously optimistic. It seems like that McLaren has a lot of really, really good things in place. And I think that saying that they're one of the top four, uh, maybe top three, if you're real optimistic, I think that's there, but they don't have the same kind of resources pushing forward. Other people are doing the exact kind of work that they did. So rein it in a little bit. I want to. I love I love seeing Orange on the podium. I love this pair of drivers a lot. I think Zach Brown did a fantastic job in terms of keeping everyone on board and keeping that thing from going off the road. But I uh, but those are sentiments. I'm going to go ahead and say cautiously optimistic. And Nate, how much potential is there? Because we know the wider plan isn't 100% in place. You've got Rob Marshall uh, still to come, David Sanchez to come into the technical team uh, and a wind tunnel that I think is online now, but was really working towards next year. So, you know, what do you expect from them going forward? Yeah. And I think that, I think 20, I mentioned 25 for Mercedes. I think that is, that is the plan for McLaren. And that is what seems realistic. I spoke to Zach Brown almost exactly a year ago. And I remember him saying, he was like, the, the the aim is to win a championship or to challenge for championship in 2025. And now wind wind back 12 months. When I heard that, I was like, that's a that's a bold statement given where you are. You look at it now, and they're on that path to it. And you're right, Lawrence, the wind tunnel they opened this year, it didn't have a big impact on this year's car. Next year's car is going to be the one where they're going to really be able to see the benefits of that. And obviously that then has a knock-on effect to 2025. You're right about the personnel they're bringing in. And also... <clears throat> um, Spencer, you're right to shout out about Zach Brown, but also Andrea Stella there as team boss, I think, has done an incredible job, um, you know, coming in. Seidel was really well thought of, you know, within the paddock, just what he did with McLaren. But Stella coming in, I've, I've, I've got to say, really, really impressed. And if you listen to Zach Brown talk, he puts so much credit on Stella's shoulders for just the way he's been able to manage that team. And yeah, I think that 2025, the reason I say that and not 2024 is I think that Brown and Stella are both being very, very cautious in not rushing this. You know, they, they've seen that they're on the right path now. They've seen how long it took them to get out of it. And I think that they realize you don't just start winning again overnight. You know, they they probably should have won or at least come closer to winning this year if, the, you know, if Max wasn't so far ahead. Um, I think that the goal next year has to be getting win number one for Lando and win number one for Oscar. I know he's won the sprint race, but you know, Grand Prix wins under their belts, go into 2025 with uh, a strong car, two very, very confident drivers, two drivers with a victory under their belt and two guys who feel like it's their time. And I think that we're slowly getting that from McLaren now. And the key thing with McLaren as well is the belief is back. I didn't, <clears throat> you know, I doubted McLaren massively. At the start of this season, I just thought, you know, when is this team? I mean, you know, watching Formula 1 growing up, it was inconceivable to think that McLaren, a team like McLaren 
would d- design bad cars year after year, but that's the state we got to. And now we're getting back to a point where it's like, okay, you can start to put some real faith behind these guys. So yeah, next year, I think what we need to see from McLaren is victories, pole positions. You know, I- I'm I'm very much on the pessimistic side. I don't think we're going to see somebody challenging Max and Red Bull from race one. But if they get to the end of that season and they're looking strong, then I think we're we're in a good place with them. And just a quick one on, on that conversation I had with Zach. I then followed it up um, after Austria this year. <clears throat> and the interesting thing he said, which puts this year into context really, was around the time <clears throat> of last year's summer break when they got rid of Ricardo and there was all that stuff. He said things were starting to feel very, very bad before they looked good. And he said at the at preseason, when they looked bad on the outside, he said internally, they were actually starting to feel very good. He felt like, you know, the numbers they were having from their upgrade that was coming were very, very positive. They were seeing a lot of really, really good things down the line. So it's just interesting. And I think that Brown you clearly has that that longer term view for things. So yeah, 2025 seems, seems realistic. And honestly, if there's a team I'm ex- most excited about on the grid, I would point at McLaren just because young driver lineup, as you said, Lawrence, all those guys joining, they're just... You know, the momentum is there with them. They're on the up and it feels like, you know, that upward trajectory, we haven't seen the last of it. It should keep going into next year and beyond. Had we been doing a mid-season review, you probably would have said similar stuff about Aston Martin because the first <laughs> half of the year was pretty impressive. A huge step over the winter. But um, Spencer, you mentioned McLaren's momentum and how important that could be for them. Well, Aston Martin don't really have that because it tailed away towards the end of the year. What what do you think has happened there? And, and do you think it's rectifiable for next year to make sure they continue to be a front runner? Um, I, I think that given the gains that they made in the off season last time and whatever they put together to get them out in front early, um, there's no reason to think that a team that talented can't come up with similar advantages and in little tweaks to the car to keep them at least as competitive if not moving upward, um, I think that though they had something that other teams didn't, which was the boost of Fernando Alonso and Alonso's stunning form. <laughs> like you shouldn't be this good at this age. You just shouldn't. Your nerve shouldn't work this well. But Fernando Alonso is a freak. And it's hard to tell the story of Alonso being such an, a competitive marvel within Aston Martin without telling the story of Lance Stroll on the other side, because a lot of those numbers, when we talk about, you know, outcalling his outcalling his teammate 19 to three, you know, winning the race against him 17 to four, it's impossible to tell that story without going, what is Lance Stroll doing? You know, do you see anything from him? Because with the same tools, um, he wasn't nearly as impressive. I know. I just said that somebody wasn't as impressive as Fernando Alonso. That's true of 99.9% of Formula One drivers, much less the general public. Um, but Stroll's, Stroll's like lack of consistency, and um, he did drive through an injury. I think he deserves credit for that. Like I think that displayed real toughness. But at the same time, um, there is a structural thing with Aston Martin that you just have to you can't get around, which is Lance Stroll when when the the principal's son is there and not really budgeable, then you have a natural governor on the potential of the team overall. And yeah, Nate, what, what do Aston Martin do about Lance Stroll? Do, do they continue with him? Do they uh, do they look at other options? Uh, is there anything they can do? Do you ever see Lawrence Stroll? telling his son that he's going to have to either look to drive elsewhere or or leave F1. Well, yeah, I, I don't I don't see that ever happening. And I think we we got a, a clear indication of that. It feels like a little bit 
almost gaslighting through the year. You know, when you would talk to, you'd hear from Mike Crack. I know you spoke to Lawrence Stroll, um, you know, uh, a few weeks ago. The way they talk about Stroll is just patently not true. You know, they'll say, oh, he's, he's on a par with Fernando. You know, their seasons have been the set. And you just look at it and you're like, well, that's not, we know that's not true. We know that's not the case. I think that's the most frustrating thing is that, like Spencer said, there's no shame in admitting a driver is not competing as well as Fernando Alonso. And the thing with Stroll, you do occasionally see, you know, he has these glimpses through a year where he has some very, very strong results. I just don't think they're, I just don't think they're, they're enough to be in Formula One. And if you took his dad out of the equation and he was just a guy, I don't think there's anything about his record that would suggest he'd stay in Formula One. You know, I think I think Stroll could go and have a very successful career in other other formula, you know, in other other series elsewhere. You know, from talking to people who have worked with him at Williams, especially, you know, they say that there is raw talent there. It's just, you know, it's not as focused. There's always a question about his commitment. And Spencer's right as well. You know, he had that injury, which I was impressed he came back from um, in the way he did. So I don't want to just complete, you know, just dump on him completely. But I think if you're looking at a clear weakness for Aston Martin right now, Lance Stroll is it. And you know, if 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 that team wants to be a serious contender at the front, you know, given the fact they have Alonso in the other car, Stroll either has to massively improve or they have to look for other options. And that's the thing. There are so many options right now on the grid. You know, you talk about the, the Charles Leclerc deal. People are going to start signing deals that, you know, that take them out of the equation. So the longer Aston Martin wait for Stroll, the, the fewer options are going to have to replace him. So the obvious answer is they should replace him. But the the more logical answer or the you know, the more sensible answer is that they probably won't ever, um, not not while Lawrence Stroll is in charge of the team. <clears throat> ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Capital One. Okay, midway through the grid and we're on to Alpine. And of course, that's not where Alpine wanted to be this year. They were hoping to push up from uh, their fourth place finish in 2022. And the objective was to close the gap to the top three. Of course, that picture slightly changed this year. But even so, Alpine's fortunes haven't really. And there was huge disruption at the team. Uh, Otmar Zafnauer, the team principal, got the boot in Belgium, along with sporting director Alan Permain. And I don't know if what they've got in place is going to solve the problems. What do you think, Spencer? Do you think that Alpine can ever get to where they aim to be? Yeah, they have like a thousand new investors, like, and they're all celebrities. <laughs> a thousand new famous investors and booted out everyone. And the only constants they had were uh, two drivers who are always so close that they're in danger of wrecking each other. Um, and that's Alpine. Alpine's a mess. And I think when you, when we're sitting here going, well, you know, we're really looking to 2025 for a competitive Mercedes or McLaren. Let's push that out for Alpine. Let's push that out. Let's just go extend that to 26, 27. This seems like a long-term kind of rebuild for Alpine. I do think they have two great drivers. I think they, I think either one of them um, are definitely in my Carlos Sainz category of start you P15, you could end up top five. Like, I think that's like, they're both uh, great drivers in terms of the comeback. Their technical setup hasn't been great, nor is their managerial or organizational one. So let's just leave that on pause. Let's just leave that on. 
Um, the best news that Alpine has is that uh, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney are investors now. And apparently when they buy a sports franchise, they immediately turn them around and win. So let's go ahead. I'm sorry. I said 2026 or seven uh, next year. Evidently, they win a title next year if uh, Deadpool and the guy from It's Always Sunny have something to say with it. Well, clearly what they need is is a documentary uh, yes. with with maybe some translation from French where they make the, or France, where they make the engines and uh, and to England uh, where they make that chassis, which never quite seems to be what it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I mean, we could talk about Alpine. We have done actually on this podcast for uh, at length, but let, let's leave it there for now and, and hope they come back a little bit stronger next year. And move on to Williams that finished seventh in the Constructors' Championship. Best results since 2017. Most points since 2017. New team principal in James Vowles. Um, it's all gone rather well. And we actually have some relatively new news uh, from Williams, which is Logan Sargent has got another year up the team uh, to try and improve on his single point that he scored this year. Nate, right decision to, to stick with Sargent? I keep changing my mind on this, honestly. I think, you know, ultimately there's not a huge amount of options out there for Williams that seem like viable candidates. Logan brings with him the fact that he's American, you know, they've obviously got American owners at the moment. There's an obvious tie in there. And I think Sergeant, it was, I think the feeling you got from Williams was that the overriding feelings James Vowles had was it's difficult to judge this guy based on a rookie year. You're based on a year when Albon's really performing well. Albon's been there for two years. You know, Albon, I think was you know was really the comparison is a bit like when Russell was with Latifi. You know, the comparison always makes one of the guys look bad. Um, and you know, we we saw these glimpses from Sergeant a bit like what Sam Stroll. You know, you see occasionally. I, I remember, I remember that there was huge hype, wasn't there, around the way that Sergeant started his first race. Like the first few corners of Bahrain were mega, and everyone was like, "Oh, this, this Sergeant guy looks amazing." And then we didn't really see any anything from him for a long, long time after that. And the mistakes crept in and it, the middle of his season, it, it reminded me a bit too much of Mick Schumacher or Mazepin, you know, at Haas, maybe not as extreme as that, but the most of the time you saw him on TV was when he'd made a mistake was when he'd done something that had kind of jeopardized his race or his weekend that was coming up. So the big thing for him, obviously in this year is that those mistakes have to go in his sophomore season. You, know, you can't do that again. And We'll see. I mean, the, whether it's the right decision or not will be will be justified or, or will be answered by if we're sitting here next year and Sargent's had an incredible season, then James Vowles will look like a genius. And I think Williams are kind of in the position where I think you can afford to make this call. You know, you don't you've got you know, you've got a competitive guy in the other car. You know, you've got a guy delivering. You can kind of take a bit of a gamble here and say, well, Sargent, they clearly saw enough from him to justify the second year i think and i've got to say one of the most awkward videos i've ever seen in my life uh as a formula one fan the videos they put up of james vows and logan Sargent talking after the contract announcement never seen anything like those before but in one of those vows says they're like picking up these pieces of like, like these pictures and he points to qatar when Sargent was feeling very very sick you know and clearly wanted to race on despite the fact he was one of the drivers having that you know those, those really extreme heat problems and i think that ultimately Sargent was racing a lot of the year. You get the impression that he was a, a bit like what we were saying with Perez. He was overdriving. He was pushing himself too much because he, he knew what was on the line. I think Williams, as soon as they got him out of that, they said, look, just, just drive, just drive the car. And I'm trying to think of how he finished the season. And annoyingly, the, the results page that I had up has just disappeared from my phone. So I was desperately trying to look at here, but it seems like towards the end of the year, we were talking less about Sargent making mistakes, less about Sargent, you know, massively being, you know, out of form or whatever. Um, and yeah, ultimately, 
they've made that call. I'm not convinced it's the right one, but if you look across the field, you'd like to see someone like Drogovic in there, who's obviously you know has won Formula Two before, but he's linked with Aston Martin. So you know, there's all these things that come into it. Um, do it, you know, unless you go back for someone like De Vries, who's obviously his your reputation this year was just dragged through the mud. I don't see where else Williams could have gone. So it seems like yeah, a decision they kind of had to make, and a decision that. You know, I think they know what the they know what the consequence of that decision is. If it's wrong, it's just that they've just got to find someone new for twenty five. Um, so worth worth taking the risk on, I'd say. Sergeant's young enough, um, but I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if you guys agree it was the right call or not. But I, f- I feel like for me, I, I'm not convinced. Well, I'd like to hear Spencer's view on this as the only actual American on on this yeah. podcast, uh, rather than two <laughs> Englishmen talk about uh, Sergeant. Is it important that there's an American on the grid, Spencer, and is Logan? the right guy not at all i don't think it's important that there's an american on the grid because i think you've seen the growth of international sports or sports with an international roster here um i think you've seen that occur without an american on the roster um you know i think epl is a great example when somebody goes well what about outside of f1 um epl is a great example you know people just enjoy the sport and it really doesn't matter what the roster is as long as there's this you know great characters you know and and you know, personalities that they can sort of and brands they can hang their hat on i don't think it's essential to have logan Sargent. in fact i think when it's logan Sargent and he's given a very slim chance to succeed by competing for williams and doing so at a very young age it it, it might be detrimental to the cause completely you know i joke about daniel ricardo being the only american on the roster but there's a serious point behind it which is his charisma and personality and unique sense of humor all put him in a position where i think he's great for the american audience and especially for the lay audience because of how open he is to talking pr being on camera being funny being vulnerable being himself you know so i don't think it's entirely necessary and i think that that's an unfair burden to place on logan Sargent too you know if you do saddle him with national expectations then inevitably he's going to disappoint just because of where he's at both in his career and in terms of what team he's driving for. I think that's a, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I think that's a really fair point actually. Um, and it makes you think about a driver like Kimi Raikkonen, for example, obviously Finnish. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, he well, they had lots of fans in Finland, but he had a remarkable amount of fans around the world. And part of that was based on success. Part of that was based on personality. And it wasn't really anything to do with nationality. So um, yeah, I think that's, that's a fair point. Um, we have talked about Alex Albon already on this podcast and what a remarkable job he did. Uh, my only question I'm going to post to both of you on him just quickly uh, is what does he do with his career going forward? Obviously, he's at Williams next year, but should he be looking to get out and uh, out of Williams and, and drive for a different team or should he try and be part of bringing Williams to the front of the grid? Nate, you go first. Well, I think his contract is one of the big confusing points when you look across the deals currently because i think he's <clears throat> he's got himself locked into this deal now with williams i think if you know if albon had a contract he could have got out of this year i think he would have done i think he would have got out of it at the end of this season going into next year um and williams says you know as i mentioned in the sergeant answer they know they've got a competitive driver in the other car so there's no desire on the valve side to let albon leave anytime soon because he's scoring the points that you know are so important to them this year. So yeah, I think <clears throat> whatever he can do to get out of that deal, I think is key. Um, but these contracts in Formula One, they're they're funny, aren't they? Some of them we hear have loopholes. And from what I've heard about Albon's is it's pretty watertight. And for him to get out of it would be pretty would be pretty unlikely. So his imagine if his story after all of this, he comes back to Formula One 
And then he gets stuck in the first contract he signs coming back to Formula One and is really unable to take advantage of the opportunities that, you know, I know from speaking to people close to Albon, they say that there has been teams have approached both last year and this year and said, you know, what's your availability? And he's they've had to turn around and say, well, sorry, at the moment, we just can't do anything. You know, and that's a horrible situation for a driver to be in because, you know, you see some of the opportunities slipping away from you. Must be frustrating. So, yeah, if you're him, you've got to be looking at that contract, getting some very, very clever lawyers to read the fine print. But I don't think he's going anywhere for the time being. Okay, theoretically, though, Spencer, let's say um, that you have read the fine print and you found an exit clause uh, (laughs) and you're Albon's manager. Who are you going to be knocking on the door of? uh, Where where do you think he would fit? Red Bull. Red Bull. Just yeah. right, that the, the Paris seat right there, and also there's an important loophole in every contract, which is emotion. If the parties yeah. involved don't like the feeling, then the words and terms become malleable. Yeah, well, we've seen that so many times in F1. Um, yeah, there's no point in having a driver in your team who desperately wants to be somewhere else and isn't a part of it going forward. Right. Okay. So let's talk about a team that cycled through a number of drivers this year. Um, Yuki Tsunoda was the constant, but alongside him was a teammate. He had Nick DeVries, he had Daniel Ricciardo, he had uh, Liam Lawson, and then he had Daniel Ricciardo again. Um, it seemed like a pretty strong season by Yuki. Uh, he's actually a driver I featured in my in my top 10. Uh, and I don't think he's featured in many top 10s that I've seen elsewhere. But I, I think he was really quite good this year, especially coming from the base that he had before where he was sometimes brilliant often inconsistent um Nate what, what do you think of, of, of Yuki's season yeah I 100% agree with you I think that he's one of the most underrated drivers certainly on the basis of this season and I think that part of that is to do with the drama of the other seat part of the fact that you know Spencer's right Danny Rick came in alongside him I think that overshadows Yuki quite a bit but if you take all of Yuki's what three seasons now and put them next to each other this one is by far the strongest one. You know, we saw glimpses in those other two seasons and Red Bull, you've always felt that Red Bull haven't quite been sure about Yuki's talent. I mean, there was that uh, podcast appearance that Christian Horner did where it felt like he was trying to force out some nice things to say about Sonoda, which is bizarre after such a good season for, for Yuki. And given the fact that the whole point of the Red Bull driver program is to try and find a driver to, to race at the top team. And I think this season, the most impressive thing is that, I still think you see glimpses of it, but that kind of that kind of unpredictable attitude that we sometimes hear from Yuki in the car seemed to be a, a bit less. You know, you, you'd always hear these crazy radio messages, and you know, he he didn't take his training as seriously in previous years. And I think that he's made a lot of little improvements across the board that I think have had a big impact across the year. Um, and if he can continue that into next season, then again, you know, with the whole Perez conversation going on, I don't think there's any reason, you know on paper why he shouldn't be in that mix there's obviously reasons behind the scenes potentially at red bull that they might not want him um but yeah i was really impressed with him and it's 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 a shame really because his season did go under the radar just given everything else going on at alpha tower yeah spencer let's talk about the two drivers uh who drove for alpha tower this year but won't be there next year of course ricardo continuing as sonoda's teammate so that's lawson and de Vries. uh how sorry do you feel for the two of them and um what did you make of their performances when they had a go in the car Nick DeVries was was at times a non-entity and I think looked overwhelmed. And it's one of the reasons why I had Piastri in my top three is when you compared him to 
how the other rookies did. He was just leagues ahead of them in terms of composure. Um, that's nothing I think you can blame Nick DeVries for. I, I think that he was just in a bad situation. It's a bad fit. I feel bad for him because um, because he's lost a Formula One seat, and those are difficult to get back. Um, Liam Lawson, it's a slightly different arrangement. Um, you know, when I talked to him, he seemed you know, cautiously optimistic about where he might end up down the road, provided that he stayed loyal and followed the plan. I think he's very much on Red Bull's plan. I think he's trying to stay very much on their radar. I don't think he seemed overwhelmed um, by the bright lights. I think he drove really well. Um, his is, I think, a happier story than DeVries. Man, if you wanted, AlphaTauri, say this for them. If you wanted a variety of cast members, that that's the team to follow. You will get the most drivers per race when you were dealing with AlphaTauri 2023. And uh, Nate, our producer Zach has insisted that we we let you have the final word on Daniel Ricciardo's season, uh, and rightly so because you know uh, you, you've been called before the Ricciardo whisperer. So, so Rocky, tell us about Daniel's season, his comeback from that broken hand, and what to expect from him next year. Well, I think overall we saw, I think we we started to see glimpses of the Daniel Rick of old this year. You know, we we spoke to him at the start of the season at the Red Bull launch in New York. Um, and you could tell he was happier than he had been at McLaren. Obviously, he then comes back to the team. And I think that just being back, I think being away from Formula One, it's funny, isn't it? It's a bit like when you speak to Kevin Magnussen about the time he spent away. Sometimes being away from Formula One is more important than the years you spend in Formula One for your motivation because you go away and you really realize, these guys realize, this is how much I want this. I think Ricardo realized it's it's still something I want to do. There's still some unfinished business there. I was really fortunate in Vegas to... Spent a, quite a, you know a whole day with him pretty much uh, you know the, in the week leading up to Vegas, talked to him quite a lot about that and yeah he just seems in such a good place right now with those things and I think going into next season you know he he's going to have a full year under his belt I think that he knows and he's made it clear what he wants is that Red Bull seat at the end of it and I think now he's got that goal he's got that hunger back and he's you know he's back at a team that ultimately. He feels like this is home for him. You know, we talked about Charles and how close he feels to Ferrari and Lewis with Mercedes. I think for Ricardo, it's the same with Red Bull. You know, he feels like that's his home. And I think now, you know, if you asked him with the benefit of hindsight, he would say, yeah, leaving for Renault was the mistake. I shouldn't have done it. Uh, he's back there now. You know, he's not one to dwell on the past too much. And yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited to see him next year. You know, I think Red Bull are hoping that Alpha Tauri or whatever we'll call them next season, we still don't know what their name's going to be going into next year, are going to be a much more competitive outfit just across the board. And if that is the case, that's why, you know, a lot of people say, well, why won't they put Ricardo in the Paris seat? That's the whole reason why, you know, Red Bull are looking at it as we want two competitive teams next year. They're not talking about having Alpha Tauri being second or third in the, in the championship, but they want them closer into that midfield midfield gap and having this Ricardo in that team makes a ton of sense. And for him, I think it's a, it's basically an, an audition year, you know, for, for that Red Bull seat. I think Christian Horner is a huge fan of Daniel Ricardo. He knows what Daniel Ricardo is about. You know, he's obviously worked with him for years and years and years. Um, and now it's just a case of, can he deliver consistently? And can he prove that the Ricardo we saw at McLaren was the Ricardo? He's, did he leave that behind at McLaren or does he, has he carried that with him? Because if you're putting somebody up against Max Verstappen, you don't want any hint that there's some mental weakness there at all, because as we've seen, he can crush a driver's confidence over the course of a season. So, you know, there's, I think he's still a fair way from that Red Bull seat, but the fact he came back, and I think the grid is better off for having Ricardo on it. He's such an entertaining character. I think he's one of the more talented drivers we've seen in F1, you know, over the past few years. Still, I think a quite a fair question mark over whether he was ever championship 
caliber or whether he was just very, very good. I think that we saw glimpses at Red Bull that he was very, very good. And then obviously, you know, we never got to see that. You know, I would have loved to have seen the Verstappen of 2018, sorry, the Ricardo of 2018 against the, the Verstappen of 2021 and 2022. That would have been fascinating to see whether Verstappen's level now is how far ahead of that Ricardo it was. Um, and hopefully we get a chance to see it in the same car. You know, I'm not sure that Ricardo will ever win that championship, but to have him come back and win some races would be mega. Um, and this is the first step to that. So great to see him back. Great to see him happy and uh, and performing. And yeah, that could be a, I think Alpha Tauri low key could be one of the more fun storylines next year to to keep an eye on. So you mentioned Alpha Tauri changing their name next year. We're not quite sure what to Alfa Romeo is also a name that will be leaving Formula One or has left Formula One already at the end of this year. Um, and they'll be back to plain old Sauber uh, next year and uh, until 2026 when Audi comes in uh, with engines and branding and all the rest that comes with it. I, for one, am quite sad about this because I think the Alfa Romeo liveries were consistently the best liveries on the grid this year. I don't know if there's any debate amongst that, gentlemen, if, if if there's another one which caught your eye up and down the grid. No, they look like, honestly, they look like a very expensive dairy product. And that's really all I want out of my liveries. That's <laughs> all you want in life, a very expensive dairy yeah. product. Nate, uh, any favorites for you? I know no, I think you're right. Alfa Romeo chat, but uh, while we're on the subject. Yeah, no, I think Alfa Romeo have kind of raised the bar there quite a bit. I loved the, I loved the Vegas Ferrari with the white on it. I thought that was great that's for a clean. one-off. Yeah, clean. And there's a there's a theme there. Italian cars. You know, Ita- you know, Italian brands at least, um, with the strongest Italian style. Indeed. Um so, so one, I guess one sec, yeah, my dad's just my, my dad's just calling me. He's we're trying to get tickets for this Norwich game. And he's like, I've I'm, I'm holding a ticket for three minutes. I'm just gonna try and log on. But you can as long as this can be on the podcast, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, see if ask, I'll tell you what, ask Spencer the next you, you guys do the Alfa Romeo and I'll just come back in when when I'm when I do or don't have a ticket, Ipswich Norwich biggest game in ten years for us. So, okay, good, good, just, good yeah. luck, Nate, and, and let's that, hope it <laughs> hope it comes through. Thank um, you very much. For, probably a sign of how long this podcast is going on for that. Um, that Nate is in the middle of buying tickets midway through. But um, Spencer, let's just quickly talk about uh, Sauber properly. Um, it seems like the improvements they need to be able to fight for championships in 2026 when Audi come in, which is absolutely what they've stated as their aim um it, it feels like the improvements aren't there enough uh, how big a step do they need to make next year and are you confident they can make it there are so many things that they're shuffling here like we're, this is a team that's between names this is a team that i believe is going to move up or move uh most of the operations to england they're going to launch the car there for the first time uh next year this is a team that's waiting for audi to come through um there's so much up in the air i know that we said that with with a team like uh, Alpha Tari, it's not even close when it comes to Sauber in terms of the number of things that they have um, in transition right now. So you could say both of these things at the same time. They were um, mostly non-functional as a race team and not really a presence um, week to week when it came to the grid. They really weren't. They were consistently in the bottom with Haas. At the same time, that's totally understandable given everything that they're going through organizationally. So uh, slight improvement there, like that's it. Let's, let's see if all the new stuff takes, let's see if we get a little more consistency out of Sauber, but on the whole, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of reason for drastic optimism here. 
And what about their two drivers? I mean, you know, it seems unlikely that those will be the two drivers that Audi uh, take into 2026. So what do they need to do, especially your man Valtteri? Uh, they're, you know, um, again, like you said at the start of the podcast, maybe not quite performing as he would have liked this year. No, no. And I think, as you said, he would admit that, that he wasn't at the level he wanted to be at either. Um, I think we're between a known and an unknown quantity when it comes to the drivers. I think that we know what what Bottas is capable of, and he's capable of truly great racing. Um, I think for Guan Yu Zhou, you know, that to me, that's where I think he's in a tough spot because I think Valtteri has a definite ceiling. And whereas I think when you have something like uh, like Joe, I, we have yet to sort of see where his. I don't know if we have the good matchup between platform and driver here to see what Joe is capable of. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think so. Um, it's it it you know it's been a bit of an unknown, and of course he, he got his his contract renewed fairly early on. I think it was Singapore this year, so there's still confidence there. But I do feel like it's a bit of a holding pattern, uh, Alfa Romeo, more than anything else. Well, one question I have to ask you, Spencer, uh, before we bring Nate back into this. Mm-hmm. Um, did you get hold of the bot ass calendar for twenty twenty? It's, it's on the way. It's a Christmas gift. So that Fantastic. means that, by the way, I'm going to have three Valtteri Bottas uh, butt themed pieces of art <laughs> in my house. Two of the original Colorado still that he had because I bought one and someone sent me one. So I have one in reserve. Should the other one be, you know, like should I lose that in a fire or something? I have the other one. And then I have the calendar, which I will remind you, this is all for charity. Uh, but yeah, when you get a chance to have Valtteri Bottas's ass hanging in your house, um, you know, you take it whenever you can get it. Couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, and great effort by Valtteri as well. Uh, yeah, posing good, good on you. with uh, Paul Ripka and then also raising all that money for November. Right, Nate, are you back with us? I am, yeah. I'm still without ticket, but we'll, um, oh, we'll keep trying. Yeah. Okay, well, can I ask you about Haas? Have you got time for that? Yes, of course. Absolutely. Right. I mean, what, look, here's a team that, you know, pretty much set up like unlike any other team on the grid. And I think now starting to show, uh, you know, they were they finished the constructors last um, after a 2022 season that looked so promising early on, certainly. And then it seems to have dropped away. So, you know, what can we say about Haas this year? Yeah, I mean, they kind of bucked the trend a bit, didn't they? Because every time we saw a team with a big upgrade, whether it was, you know, obviously the McLaren one, we saw Mercedes make a step. We saw teams introduce a big upgrade and you could see a tangible improvement. We saw Haas kind of roll out this new concept in, it was Austin, wasn't it? Um, where, where that came. And they kind of just stayed in the same the same spot competitively. There wasn't a huge, there wasn't a huge step. You know, the drivers didn't really report that the car had got any better. So it's odd. And, you know, I think Steiner was trying to, spin that and say well you know it put us in a better position for next season a better basis to build on but yeah if you look across the grid i think Haas is the one where you look and you think man these guys you know there's there's just been no progress this year and that seems to have been the 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 talking point for every other team so yeah hard to hard to really see where they go at this point because you know now we've got the budget cap as well the old excuse that Haas may have had in terms of the playing field is gone you know they're competing they are set up differently to other teams but in terms of how much money others are spending compared compared to them, that's no longer the case. So you feel like this should be a time when they're thriving. And yeah, it just it felt like a year that I think from maybe race five or six, when I was talking to people at the team, they were just like, Yeah, this year's a write-off, which when a team when a team's doing that that early, it's kind of always kind of red flag 
territory i think so yeah i think out of all the out of all the seasons and they've got quite they had quite a fun driver lineup i think you know lawrence and i always joke you know he's a hulkenberg guy i'm a magnuson guy um and yeah i, I thought that was quite an interesting driver lineup two experienced guys two guys obviously who we always joke about that beef that they had before but who actually i think after years and years of struggling with rookie drivers has finally had their head around the fact that okay we need experienced drivers here to lead us forward and then they kind of produce a dud car and you know i think hulkenberg did a good job with it through different points of the year we didn't really see a huge amount from k mag which was a shame because you know i've always i've always been a big fan of his so yeah i think you know they they, they really need to turn a corner next season otherwise it could just be another another wasted season yeah i think hulkenberg was the um was a surprise maybe from from Haas coming back obviously such a long time away uh, his average qualifying position was was just over 12 12.14 which is actually pretty good in in a car like that um to talk about the yeah the issues that the team faces as a whole and development wise um Gunter was talking about it in Abu Dhabi and basically said the problems were baked in from the very start and you know some of the major issues they had with that car they couldn't unpick so in trying to develop it aerodynamically they're always on a bit of a a, a losing uh kind of you know, they're always going to struggle to uh, to 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 build it up, and um, of course, by the end of the year, they were running two different specs because they one driver preferred one, one driver preferred the other. But they're optimistic things will get better for next year. Okay, guys, that wraps up our unlapped season review of all ten teams and a little bit more. But before we go, we need to get some predictions in place for 2024. Of course, it's way too early to make sensible predictions. So these are our bold predictions intentionally out there um, for, well, our listeners' entertainment, essentially. Nate, let's start with you. What's your bold prediction for 2024? Mine's quite an apocalyptic one. I'm not sure there's much entertainment to be had. I am going to say Max wins more races next year than he did this year. That's I I know that's... Yeah, I think he... I mean... (laughs) I don't know, 24 maybe maybe is too many but I just I just can't see the guy stopping winning he's been so good the car's in a great place um and that combination is just is is as close to unbeatable as we've seen so was it 19 this year yeah he's got an extra race to win next year as well hasn't he or two extra races is that two right it's races, 20 yeah. 24 instead of 22 so yeah I mean that's that's uh that's like happy hour at the bar if you max Verstappen. there's there's so many chances sorry to everyone listening to that I hope I hope I'm wrong but you know Spencer, what have you got? Something a little bit more upbeat, maybe, for uh, people hoping for a competitive year in Formula One? Uh, I'll make a very specific gossipy one, which is this. I think that the big money comes for Alex Albon and that we we try to get him poached uh, at one point next year. And I, and I think that will probably get sloppy and nasty. But I think that with that two spot at Red Bull looking wobbly, that the potential for some personnel chaos is there. Nice. I like that. I think the driver market is probably going to be one of the highlights of, of next year. Um, the potential for silly season to kick off in a whole new way uh, next year as a number of driver contracts come to an end. Okay, my prediction, I'm going to balance out Nate and say that remarkably, Mercedes get it right. They go back to basics with everything. We know that they're scrapping um, a whole load of uh, what they had on this year's car and they feel that they've got um, something special for for next year. I don't mean it's going to happen immediately, but over the course of the year, it's going to ramp up and you might see a situation where Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen again fight for a world championship. I don't know how likely that is, but I'm just putting it out there anyway. Um, Anyway, well, 
thanks for listening to Unlapped. Uh, those are our predictions. You have to wait and see whether any of them come true. Hopefully, by the time we start next year, you will all have forgotten and we can make some new bold predictions that are entirely different. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the ESPN channel for more F1 content and leave five-star reviews wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thank you very much.